Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in the last verse of chapter 16, verse 28, through verse chapter 17, verse 13. That's where we're going to be tonight. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, through chapter 17, verse 13. All right, let me read to you our section for tonight. Jesus is speaking at the end of chapter 16, and he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now we're going to start in verse 28, the end of chapter 16. If you were with us last week, I told you that verse 28, we left it off on purpose because the last part of chapter 16 here connects with chapter 17. And I'm going to show you that from Mark's account and Luke's account as well. So verse 28 will make a whole lot more sense when you connect it with the verses that follow. So look, let me show you here in chapter 16, verse 28. Truly Jesus says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then Matthew says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother, and he led him up a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes shone. Jump over to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we'll look at Mark's account of this. Mark's account actually, the people that put the Bible together in chapters and verse connected uh, that verse of Jesus saying some won't taste death until they see the Son of Man in His kingdom. It's connected in the same chapter. In Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, And He, this is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus and Peter, and talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were, they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jump over to Luke chapter 9 real quick and it'll show you that this section is connected in the verses that follow the, the statement of Jesus that none, some of these won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. In Luke chapter 9, look at verses 27 through 36. In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was sorry, Moses and Elijah are there with him, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who, who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came over and came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what? They had seen. Now, I read all three accounts because, as you've probably noticed as you follow along, each account brought out a little bit more and a little bit more interesting things. As you put them together, we'll get our study for tonight. Now, first off, seeing all this, we now realize that when Jesus said in verse 28 of Matthew 16 that some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, he was referring to Peter, James, and John. And the fact that they got to see with their own eyes God's invisible kingdom. Now, Matthew and Mark say it was six days later. Luke says eight. Some people will say, well, how could it be six or eight? Well, here's the deal. Chances were there were six days between when he spoke it and when it happened. And Luke's just keeping track of the day that he said it and the day that it happened. So I'm not worried about that number. It, the scripture's inerrant. And it just depends on how you, they were counting the days. Now, at the same time, we know now that the people who weren't going to taste death until they saw his kingdom and saw his kingdom come in glory and power were Peter, James, and John. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Peter in one of his books and John in one of his actually references the fact that they got to see him in his glory. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 16 through 19. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, Peter says this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter says, we saw his glory. We heard the voice from the Father on that mountain. Go to 1 John chapter 1 as well. In John's book of 1 John that he wrote, he actually mentions it a little bit as well. In 1 John chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 4, how he starts the book. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things things that our joy may be complete. So Peter and John and James also all saw Jesus. They were the ones who weren't going to see death until they saw the kingdom of God coming in glory and in power. Now, as we come back to what that means, I'm going to show you another translation instead of the kingdom of God. I'm going to show you something else. Uh, and, and so uh, I'll show you that when we get there. But what I want to do, though, is jump quickly to verse nine of chapter 17. Because after he reveals himself, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, he, he does something very interesting. He, do, he tells Peter, James, and John that they're not allowed to tell anyone what they saw until after he's risen from the dead. Luke's account just said they didn't tell anybody. And if you didn't read the other accounts, you would have think, well, why didn't they tell anybody? Well, Jesus clearly told them not to. Look at Matthew 17, verse 9 again. In seven, chapter 17, verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Folks, I want to take a second and deal with a couple of things here. And I want to speak to you straight up. And I just feel like this is something that God's revealed to me recently within the last few weeks. And I want to just share this with you. When God reveals things to us, sometimes it's for us to share. Sometimes it's just for us. And sometimes it to be, it's to be shared, but later. We see clearly that Jesus doesn't reveal the same thing to everyone. Peter, James, and John got to see things the others didn't get to see. They were there when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were there a little bit further when he prayed in the garden. And Jesus has his plan and his purpose for all of our lives. Stop expecting everybody else to be like you or you to be like everybody else. Stop comparing your Christian walk with anybody else's and just live the life that God has for you. You will find so much more joy in your walk with the Lord. But also realize this. When God reveals things to you, sometimes it's not to be shared. Sometimes it is to be shared. Sometimes it's to be shared, but not now. Sometimes it's just so that you would pray. And we need to learn to discern, is this something that God wants me to tell others about? Because we have a tendency sometimes to automatically think that if God tells you something, you're supposed to tell. Pray before you do. Pray before you do. I've dealt with people over the years who have a gift where God shows them in times of prayer some things they automatically assume and did a lot of damage that since God showed me, I have to go tell these people. No, pray before you share anything that God has shown you. Sometimes he's going to say this is just for you. Sometimes he's going to say it is for someone, but not now. You hold on to it till I tell you when. Other times he's going to tell you, go tell people. And that's something I've had to learn over the years and I'm still developing. And I pray you will hear that as well. 
But Jesus is always teaching us, even today, folks. But if you try to understand what he's doing all the time, right at that moment, like I just told you, sometimes he's going to share something with you or teach you something, but you won't really fully understand it until later on. Sometimes when God is doing something in your life, our first reaction is, well, why did this happen? What's God doing? And you want to figure it all out. Go with me to John chapter 13 real quick. Go to John 13 and look at verses 6 and 7. And John chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, listen to what the scripture said. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you want to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Don't miss that. Jesus said, what I'm doing right now, you don't understand. Later on, you will. Folks, let me say something about COVID-19. We don't know God's full plan. We see some awesome things that he's doing. We see some things that are being accomplished because of what God is doing. But at the same time, we don't know what he's doing fully. and We don't know why some people are getting sick and other people aren't. We, beware of Christians who try to speak for God before he's told them to speak. Sometimes God puts us through things and we don't know why. But later you will understand. Why? Because God's purpose is to teach and to train us and to show us things. Go with me real quick to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples about the fact that the Holy Spirit had been with them, but now he's going to be in them. And in John chapter 14, verse 25 through 27, Jesus said this to him. He said this. He said, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Listen closely. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jump over to chapter 16 and look at verses 12 through 15. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus says, I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He's going to glorify me for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. So here Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says, look, the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into all the truth. He's going to teach you. He's going to remind you of things that I've said. And there are more things that I want to share with you. But the, when the Spirit comes and He lives inside of you, He's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. Some things you don't understand, you can't bear right now. But He will guide you into all the truth. So don't just sit back and expect God to speak to you without spending time in the Word, though, and in prayer. This is how He's going to speak to you. Remember we just read in John 14 and verse 26? He's going to bring to you remembrance everything that I've said to you. Folks, Jesus can't, through his spirit, bring to you remembrance things that he said if you didn't put it in. Spend time in the word. Spend time daily in prayer. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, if you are ready to give me some insight as to what's going on in my life right now and why this is happening or why this is what you're allowing such and such. There's nothing wrong with asking, but be okay with the fact that he may say to you, uh, not yet. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the scripture says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed are to us and to our children. So understand, God has the right to hide some things for a season. And he has the right to say, you know what? Well, you just saw you can't tell anybody until I tell you. And don't kill yourself, frustrate yourself, exasperate yourself by trying to figure out what God's doing all the time as it's happening. Be okay with the fact that he will tell me. 
He's a loving father. He has a plan. And even though I don't know what it is right now, I trust him. And when it's time, what I'm going through now will make sense. And it'll be clear why and whether or not I'm supposed to share. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, write it down, look at it later on. Proverbs 25, verse 2, it says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search a matter out. So don't just sit around and say, well, I guess if God's going to tell me when God's going to tell me, I'll just sit back and wait until he tells me. No, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, spend time asking, but then be okay with the fact that he may say not yet, but that's okay. Why am I okay with not yet? Because he will tell me. In James chapter 1, verse 5 and following, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when you ask, don't doubt, believe that he will. But listen, don't put God on your timetable as to when he's supposed to answer. Believe that he will help you see, believe that he'll help you understand, believe that he'll reveal to you, but he gets to choose when. You're going to find you'll have so much more peace in your walk with the Lord. Because if you're like me, and I know you are, because he deals with us all, a lot of times you go through stuff and you don't know why. Later on, when it's time. Until then, relax. And your father has a plan and he loves you. Now, we have to let God, like I just touched on. Let me just show you scripturally. We need to let God determine the aha moment. Go to John chapter 20 and look at verses 8 and 9. In John chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. This is after Jesus rose from the dead that same day. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So even at this point, even though he's been telling them over and over, they still didn't understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Even though they're looking at an empty tomb, they go back bewildered. They're confused. They don't understand. But when it's time, he'll reveal it to you. I'll show you that in just a second. But you do know on the road to Emmaus, he went and spoke to two other guys that same day. They were confused. They were bewildered, but he opened their eyes at that moment. Then later on, he goes back and opens the eyes of the disciples. Go to Luke 24. And Luke 24, verses 44 through 45. This is again that same day, that same night. They're all in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And in verses 44 and 45, the scripture says, Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, earlier we just saw, even though they're looking at an empty tomb, they still didn't get it from the scriptures. But then at this moment, he opens their eyes. Folks, let God determine your aha moment. Jim, I read the Bible and I just don't understand it sometimes. That's okay. There are times I'll read a passage and I'll wrestle over it for a while. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's months. Sometimes it might be a year or two. But all of a sudden, at a certain moment, at a certain time, when it's right, God will all of a sudden unlock that passage that I've wrestled with for years. I could spend the rest of our time tonight telling you stories upon ways that God has opened my eyes to scriptures that I didn't understand until then, though, we'll just save those for individual episodes during our study. We've got to finish where we are. Let's go back to Matthew chapter uh, 17. All right. Now, with that, all of all that is our introduction. Let's go back and take a look at what happened on that mountain. Go back to Matthew 17. Look at verses 1 through 8. 
It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was, as he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as we've already seen, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to reveal to them, listen closely, his royal splendor. That word in verse 28 of Matthew 16, translated kingdom, could also be translated royal splendor. So read it again with me now. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his royal splendor. See, the fact that he said coming in and it's been translated kingdom has thrown a lot of people into, well, the kingdom's now. Well, definitely the kingdom's now, but it's still to come. Just like Elijah came, but he's still to come. We'll get to that in a little bit in our study tonight. We, we see here that that word could be also translated royal splendor. He said, some of you aren't going to see death until you see the Son of Man in his royal splendor. Oh, by the way, that's what they saw, isn't it? Remember, his face shone, his clothes became white as light. We saw in one of the other accounts, I think it was Luke's, that it was brighter than any, any uh, person could make. Look at John chapter 17. Look at what Jesus prays in the garden right before he goes to the cross. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Listen closely with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people and you gave them to me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. All right, listen closely. He said, Lord, I've given you glory by doing what it is you had for me to do on the earth. By the way, that's another whole message for another day. That's how we bring him glory too, by living the life that he has for each of us and doing the work that he's asked and called us to do. But then he prayed this, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 16. Not only did John see Jesus' glory on that mountain, he also saw him on the Isle of Patmos. When he was exiled out there because of his faith in Christ, and he was put in prison out on that island, Jesus appeared to him again in his royal splendor. Look at Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 16. It says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, White like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. He then goes on and says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isn't that what happened to the disciples earlier? When they saw his glory, they were so terrified, especially when the voice from the Father boomed, they just fell as dead men. Folks, John saw his glory more than once. Jesus, at that time on that holy mountain, the Father allowed his glory to shine through. He allowed his glory to shine through his flesh, his earthly flesh. It had to felt good. It had to felt wonderful to allow that glory just to shine through for a little bit. And the disciples got to see a little bit of his royal splendor. But not only did Jesus' glory shine through his flesh... Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking to Jesus. Luke's account tells us, by the way, what they were talking about. Go to Luke chapter 9 again. Look at verses 28 through 31. I don't know if you caught it when we looked through this earlier, but Luke's account tells us what they were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, look at verses 28 through 31. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, it says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, this is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah are talking with him about his death that he was about to accomplish as he was going to go and be killed and then rise from the dead. Listen, I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick. Now, for those of you that know me and have been a part of my Bible studies, you know that I don't like chasing rabbits unless you can catch them. And if you catch them, they taste good. Uh, too many preachers chase rabbits and then they never really catch them. We're going to chase one real quick. I just feel the need. We need to do this. And let me just say this to you. What we're seeing here, along with some other scriptures I'm going to show you real quick, shows us that there's no such thing as soul sleep. There's a lot of you that have been raised in denominations that teach that there's a soul sleep. And when some of you are saying, what's soul sleep? Soul sleep is the doctrine that teaches that when believers die, Old Testament and New Testament believers die, they uh, go into soul sleep until the, Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. And that's when they come back to life. They're asleep right now until then. Others teach that they were imprisoned. Old Testament saints were in prison until the time of Jesus' resurrection. And then through between his death and his resurrection, he released the captives and he brought them into the presence of God because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And Old Testament saints had to be in prison until then. Folks, um, it doesn't look to me like Moses and Elijah are sleeping. Second of all, they're quite aware of what's going on and what's about to happen. And on top of that, has Jesus died on the cross yet? No, this is prior to it. Yet they're already in the presence of God. They're there. The Father's speaking and they know what's going on. Go with me to uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verses 48 through 59. Jesus is speaking. And John chapter 8, verse 48 it, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now the Jews said to him, now that we, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Hang on for a second. I thought Abraham was supposed to be sleeping. No, Old Testament saints aren't asleep and they're not in prison. I'm going to show you that. All right. He rejoiced that they would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They said, <laughs> Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Hopefully you understand when Jesus said, I am, he was claiming to be God. That was the name that God revealed to Moses. When Moses said, when he saw the burning bush, what's your name? God said, my name is I am. And Jesus claimed to be God. And he said, Abraham rejoiced at the idea of seeing this time on the earth. He's seen it. And he was glad he's awake. Go to Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, look at verses 39 through 43. In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, it says, One of the criminals who hang, were hanged with Jesus railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. By the way, today is three days prior to the resurrection. Jesus didn't go and suffer in hell for three days he finished payment for man's sin on the cross. And because God sees all time as now, it's, there's no past, present, and future to him. He sees it all at once. In the mind of God, even though in our time, Abraham's sin hadn't been paid for by Jesus, it was. He was slain before the foundation of the world. And because God knew Abraham's faith, he gave him righteousness at that moment when he believed. The Bible says so in Genesis 15, verse 6. And folks, listen to me. The Old Testament saints are in the presence of God. New Testament believers, when they die and leave these bodies, they go right into the presence of the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Oh, but what about that passage, Jim, that says that Jesus lit the cap went to the captives? Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look closely at what it says. 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 18 through 20. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safely through water. Listen closely. He went and preached to who? The spirits who were in prison because they didn't obey in the time of Noah. Folks, the spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3 are those who did not obey and did not believe. The Bible's clear. Because of the death of Jesus, all who put their faith in God's provision for their sins, which is Jesus. Old Testament saints who put their faith in God's provision, even though they didn't know Jesus' name, they knew the promises that he would provide, that he would make them righteous. They are given righteousness because of Jesus. There's no soul sleep, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 1, as he wasn't sure if he's going to live or die at that moment in that prison in Rome, said, I know that if I die, I go be with Christ. There's no soul sleep. If you've been taught that, I'm sorry, but the Bible's real clear. That's a real, that's a no-brainer. Moses and Elijah are awake and alert, and they know what's going on. They're talking with Jesus. Now, actually, Moses and Elijah's appearance, along with the Father's presence in the cloud, are a confirmation that Jesus is the one that the law and the prophets were pointing to. Don't miss this. Moses represented the law. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. That's called the law. Elijah is known for being one of the most prevalent and prominent prophets. Go to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, look at verse 5. I want you to see this. And then we're going to show you how it parallels with the rest of Scripture. Matthew 17, verse 5. It says, as he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, who's speaking? The father. Okay. The father said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Who else is there? Moses and Elijah. Moses represents what? The law. Elijah represents what? The prophets. Very good. Now go to Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 through 24. The Old Testament, if you will, stood there representing or pointing to the fact that Jesus was the promised one that they had been writing about. The Father spoke. And in Romans chapter 3, look at verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The law and the prophets bear witness to the fact that salvation is through Jesus. The righteousness is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Go back to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, look at verses 39 through 47. Jesus is speaking now in John chapter 5, starting in verse 39. Jesus says to the Jews, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness about me, Jesus said. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Talking about the Antichrist coming, by the way. And how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Moses and Elijah there pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one. Not just their writings, they themselves personally appeared and were with Jesus on that mountain. With the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. Folks, if you're out there today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, I don't know what else I can tell you. God's spoken. Jesus has spoken. Who is God? Moses and Elijah, who wrote about him and prophesied about him, stood there and said, this is the guy. Let me give you another one. Go to John chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1 and look at verses 43 through 45. In John chapter 1, verse 43, the next day, it says, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found of him, found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They even understood. This is the guy. We think this is the one. The, what Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about. All through the Old Testament, there were these prophecies about this one who was going to come. We touched on some of those already. How this seed of the woman was going to come and defeat the, Satan and crush his head. And the prophecies pointed to this one, descendant of David. And folks, Jesus on that mountain, the Father allowed his glory to shine through. Moses and Elijah appeared. The Father spoke, all saying, this is the guy that we've been writing about. He's my son. Believe in him. Listen to him. Folks, I hope you do. I hope you do. Now, as a quick aside, not chasing a rabbit on this one here, just a quick aside, for many scriptural reasons, this just being one here in Matthew 17, I believe that the two witnesses in Jerusalem are going to be, during the tribulation period, are going to be Moses and Elijah. That's another whole study for another time, but I believe the scriptures, and I could take the time to show you there's a lot of scriptures that point to this. I believe the two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah. I believe God's going to send them again to preach to the Jews in the last days. Now, notice, I'm sorry? It's in my Revelation study as well. Chris and Allison here are reminding me. If you want to actually get that whole study, go to the Revelation study. The 2015 one will deal with it. The 2009 one does as well. Um, go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Oh, Elise, who's been actually turning the Revelation studies into a book. Wait for it. She's doing a great job. It takes a long time to write a book. It's in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. One through 14. So go to the Revelation study, chapter 2015 on my website. Go to Revelation, the verses that cover, or the passage that covers Revelation 11, 1 through 14. It's in there. All right. Now, um, notice, though, that what Peter wanted to do when he sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his glory he wanted to make tents for the three of them because he wanted to stay there and make little worship places. Now, folks, this is a very natural tendency, and you can't blame him. We do the same thing today. Whenever we have a powerful experience with God, we try to recreate that experience. How many of you have had God do something that was powerful, emotionally moving, spiritually stirring, it might have been a certain song that God used, and then you'll want to play that song over and over to recreate that feeling. Folks, keep moving with God. I thank God for some of the powerful moments of his presence in my life. I really do. But I also thank God for the varied ways in which he's revealed himself to me over the years. 
Because I learn more about myself and more about him as he reveals himself in different ways. In John chapter 4, go to John chapter 4. Jesus was beginning to teach the Jews about the need to stop thinking that worship happens only in certain places. In John chapter 4, look at verses 19 through 21. In John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, The woman, this is the woman at the well, she said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, meaning the Jews are ones saying this. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Folks, beware of thinking that you have to go to a sanctuary or at your church to worship him. By the way, God's kind of taken that away, hasn't he? If you thought that worship only happened in that building, you're in trouble. Because a lot of those doors are locked because we can't all get together and meet. Uh, worship happens where Jesus is and in your, he, he's in you if you know him as your savior. And you always have him in your presence and always, you're always there and you can worship him in spirit and in truth. Beware of the danger also. I'm going I'm to talk to church people here real quick. Beware of the danger of worshiping a method that God has used in the past to accomplish his purposes. There are some things God has done in the past and they were powerful. And we then, like Peter, want to keep holding on to what was. This is how we did it in the 50s and man, it was powerful. And we try to hang on to how it was in the 50s. If you've ever read my book, Principles of a God-Centered Church, you know that the first chapter deals with how God doesn't duplicate methods. And all through the scriptures, he never does the same thing twice the same way. Go to 2 Kings, though, chapter 18. Go to 2 Kings, chapter 18, and look at verses 1 through 4. 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until these days, or those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, it was called Nehushtan. Remember when God was judging the people of Israel and disciplining them in the wilderness and he sent the fiery serpents and as they cried out to God, God told Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a stick, put it on a pole and hold it up and everyone that looks up to it will be spared. Well, that bronze serpent that God used had stayed with the people of Israel and now they were worshiping it. Oh, folks, let me tell you, it grieves me. How many churches today are full, church buildings are full of bronze snakes? Things that God has used in the past and it becomes worshipped. A certain table at the front of the sanctuary that can't be moved. Or certain chairs that were given in honor of so-and-so on the podium and they can't be touched. Don't worship places and things. The ones who worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Don't try to worship methods that God has used. By the way, there's nothing wrong with remembering what God did. 
Jesus in John chapter 3 when he meets with Nicodemus, even though Hezekiah had to destroy that bronze snake with the Asher poles and all that other stuff, even though he had destroyed them, Jesus in John chapter 3 referenced the bronze snake when he told Nicodemus in John 3, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will also be lifted up. Oh, and by the way, in the, in the wilderness, when they looked to the thing that was up on the pole and they were spared, the representation of their sin, the judgment for their sin was a snake, and they looked at the representation of the judgment for their sin. Jesus was put up on a pole. He was put up on a cross, and He was the judgment for our sin. And when we look to Him, we're spared, and we'll live as well. What a wonderful picture the bronze snake was. But don't worship the bronze snake. Worship what it was pointing to. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 17 and look at verses 10 through 13. In Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, and the disciples asked Jesus, Why then do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will, future, did you catch that? He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now look closely at how verses 11 and 12, I'm not going to read them to you again. Look closely though at how these verses talk about how Elijah has come, but still will come. Malachi in chapter 4, go back one book of the Bible, you're in Matthew, back up one book of the Bible into the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come, would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Listen to the prophecy though in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So why were the scribes saying Elijah has to come? Because the prophecy said, God's word said that Elijah would come. Now, go to Luke chapter 1, and you'll see that Gabriel, in speaking to Zechariah about the fact that he and his wife Elizabeth, who had had no children and old, were older in years, were going to have a special child. In the prophecy, Gabriel said that John the Baptist would come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. But the angel, this is Gabriel, said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sounds a lot like the prophecy in Malachi, as you're going to see. That's because if Jesus had, sorry, not Jesus, if the Jews had only believed in Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior who had to die. Now, see, if you think that if they had just received him as their Messiah and let him set up his kingdom, no, he had to die still. The prophecies about him coming and being the suffering servant and paying for our sins and rising from the dead. If he never fulfilled those prophecies, we'd be all dead in our trespasses. We, we, we wouldn't have anyone cover our sins. No, but if the Jews had believed that he was not only the Messiah, but he was the one who had to die for their sins, Malachi's prophecy would have been fulfilled by John the Baptist. But God, again, he's outside of time. He sees it all. 
He knew that they wouldn't believe, and Malachi's prophecy will be ultimately fulfilled by Elijah himself. Remember I hinted earlier at the two witnesses? He's going to come back. Why? Well, Jesus said Elijah will come and restore all things. So I'm going to ask you a question tonight. This will find out whether you're paying attention. Quiz time. This is easy because I don't have the ability to hear your answers. So I hope you'll get the answer right. Has Elijah come yet? The answer is yes. Jesus himself said he has already come. And they knew he was talking about John the Baptist. He has come in the spirit and the power via John the Baptist. But I'm going to ask you another question. Then if Elijah's already come, will Elijah still come? Yes. And he will be used by God in God's restoring about all things prophesied about. We're going to take the last few minutes we have left tonight to deal with what Jesus said. And I'm going to just read to you a bunch of Old Testament prophecy after I read to you a New Testament passage. But look again at Matthew chapter 17 and look again here at verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will highlight the next couple of words. I highlight them, underline them, mark them. And then I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures that go with it. He does come and will restore all things. That term, restore all things. If you knew your Old Testament, that, those words would jump off the page. Go with me to Acts chapter 3 first. Go to Acts chapter 3. Look at verses 17 through 21. In Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. This is Peter preaching there at Pentecost under the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time, here we see it again, for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus has gone to the Father. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's gone to be with the Father until the time for the restoring all things. Elijah's going to come. He's going to be involved in that process of restoring all the things that the prophets talked about. And Jesus is going to come and fulfill the prophecies about the restoring all things. Well, what, are the, what does that mean then? What are the things that are going to be restored? Get your notes out. Get your paper out. Get your pen. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm not going to give you all the Old Testament prophecies. We don't have time tonight. But I'm going to give you four passages of Scripture all right in this section here. In Jeremiah chapter 29, look at verse 14. In Jeremiah 29, verse 14, right after that famous passage where we know, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, the promise for Israel, give you hope in the future. And then you're going to seek for me and find me and you'll seek me when you seek with all your heart. He says in verse 14 to the nation of Israel, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What did God tell the nation of Israel? At a certain time, you're going to seek for me and you're going to find me as a nation and you're going to seek me with your whole heart. 
heart, and I will be found by you. And when that time comes, I'm going to restore all the things. I'm going to bring you back from all the nations I've scattered you all over the globe, Jews, and I'm going to bring you back to where I scattered you from. Go over to chapter 30. Look at verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the people spoke concerning Israel, that the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord. We have heard a cry of panic and of terror and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Stop real quick. I'm going to keep reading here in just a second. Remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is asked about his return and the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And he said, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, Antichrist. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. If you go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the famous passage about how he's going to be, Jesus, the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And then it says he's going to give them over until she who is in labor has given birth. There's a time of distress coming for the nation of Israel during the tribulation period, which is going to be like a woman in labor. And it shall come to pass, verse 8, in that day declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke, that's the Antichrist, his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will be no, by no means leave you unpunished. So God says there's this time coming. The tribulation period, remember, Moses and Elijah are going to be witnesses during that time, and he's going to begin the restoring of all things. Jump with me to chapter 30, verses 18 through 24. Chapter 30, verse 18, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I'll multiply them. They shall not be few. I'll make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone first, forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his, heart, of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Did you catch that? Doesn't that sound like what we talked about at the beginning? There are some things that God's going to make all of a sudden make sense at the proper time. The prophecies are pointing to what's coming to the nation of Israel. And in the latter days, they'll get it. 
One last passage, Jeremiah 31, look at verses 23 through 40. We'll close with this tonight. Jeremiah 31, verses 23 through 40. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck them up and break down and to overthrow and destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And in those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for the light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I'll cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garib, and then shall turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Let me ask you a question as we close tonight. Has that happened to Israel yet? No, they're back in the land, but they're still not at ease. They haven't gone through that final tribulation period that the prophecies are pointing to, but he's going to send Elijah and he's going to use him to restore all things. And Jesus is in heaven waiting until the time when he comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth in Jerusalem. And he's going to restore all the things that the prophets said. Folks, you and I in the church age have been given the wonderful promises for Israel. Now, Jesus is in us. Our sins are erased. He, he's put his spirit within us and he's moving us to follow his decrees. We get to be a part of all that he's going to do in the future, but he's not done with Israel. So here's what I want you to close tonight. Be praying on a daily basis. I believe God wants us as the church to be doing this. Pray for Israel. Pray for them. Pray for them to come to know Jesus and believe in them, Him as their Savior. And share with a couple neighbors in the meantime. I love you. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. We look forward to seeing you next Tuesday.